Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. I want to begin by reading from 2 Chronicles, beginning in chapter 20, verse 3. I don't want you to turn there, because it's a fairly lengthy passage of Scripture, but I want you to listen for just a couple of minutes. Jehoshaphat is a king of Israel, and... He finds himself in a very difficult place. He's surrounded by three armies. He's outnumbered. He's not quite sure what he ought to do. And so we pick up our story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 3. Again, just listen. It's a lengthy passage, but I want you to listen to what happens. Alarmed, which is a good way for him to start, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. And then Jehoshaphat stood up, in the assembly of Judah at Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord, in the front of the new courtyard, and he said, here's what the king says in the face of opposition, in the face of this great vast army that come against, comes against their people. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built, it, built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. So they stand up and they begin to pray and one man senses the presence of the Lord and he prophesies in verse 15 and here's what he says, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judea and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow... March down against them. They will be climbing up the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the edge of the gorge in the desert of Zerul. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your possessions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. So, Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshipped before the Lord. Now skip down. Early in the morning, they left for the desert, and as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and he said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. Now I want you to listen to his strategy. After consulting the people... Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise Him for the splendor of His holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord for His love endures 
forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. Now, I've never had any military training. I wasn't in the army, and I don't understand the tactics necessarily of the army, but I have a suspicion that when you're greatly outnumbered by a vastly superior army, the first thing you don't think of doing is putting men at the head of the column to sing songs as you walk into battle. But see, that's the beauty of the Lord. You see, when we follow what He calls us to do, and we worship Him, and we praise Him for the splendor of His holiness, when we do those things, we will be victorious. No matter what we set out to do. So with that thought in mind, I want you to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 150 this morning. Psalm 150. This is week four in our study on worship. We've been talking about worship. We've been studying worship this morning. We're going to talk about worship through praise. And we've defined worship like this every week. Worship is recognizing the greatness of God and properly responding to Him. Two weeks ago, we talked about the importance of preparing our hearts. Are we ready when we come to worship? Are we ready to receive the Word of God into our hearts and ultimately to give back to Him our worship and to hear His Word in our heart? Last week, we we talked about the, the importance of giving ourselves fully to God in all of our lives in worship in the places that we live and the places that we work and certainly as we come together as a body corporately every Sunday morning. This week in Psalm 150, we're going to talk about the importance of praise and worship. And we're going to answer very simple questions. Four very simple questions from Psalm 150 that will help us understand praise and worship. And it will help us begin to apply this to our lives. So we'll read together. Psalm chapter 150, beginning in verse 1. I think we have it on the screens. Praise the Lord. Now I want you to notice all the times the phrase praise the Lord or praise Him or praise God is used. Verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. Praise Him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and the lyre. Praise Him with the timbrel or the tambourine. With dancing. Praise Him with strings and with pipe. Verse 5. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Verse 6. Praise, excuse me, let everything that has breath... Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's it. It's just six short verses. Now there are four questions I want to answer this morning that relate to worship and specifically praise in worship. And there are four questions you need to consider. And there are four questions you need to apply to your life. Here's question number one. They're going to all be answered in Psalm 150. Question number one. Where should we praise the Lord? Now, you may have noticed all the times that praise the Lord is mentioned in Psalm 150. In fact, if you were counting, it'd be 13 times. Praise the Lord or praise God or praise Him is mentioned 13 times. Now, you don't have to have any kind of fancy degree to understand that the text in Psalm 150 is about praising the Lord. But the psalmist is going to begin in verse 1 by giving us kind of two distinct ideas here, two distinct areas in which we should praise the Lord. So, as we begin to consider the first question, where should we praise the Lord? The answer is very simply in verse 1. We're to praise Him, first of all, in His sanctuary. We're to secondly praise Him in His mighty heavens. 
Now, when we hear the word sanctuary, many of us think about a physical building. We think about maybe the Old Testament tabernacle. We think about the structure in which we work here, the structure in which we're sitting here. And it would be fair to say that this is a sanctuary. But I think we need to be careful. Because if we think that our worship can only be limited to the time that we're in the physical sanctuary, we're missing the truth of the Word of God. If you think your worship is only limited to 9.30 on Sunday morning or 11 on Sunday morning or the time you walk into Bible study on Sunday morning or Sunday night or whenever that may be during the week, if you think your worship is limited to those times, you're missing the truth of the Word of God. That's not what the Scripture teaches. Now I want to understand this idea of sanctuary just for a couple of minutes because if we were to study the Old Testament... And again, this was written in the Old Testament time period. It was written to the Jewish people. It was written before the birth of Christ. We need to understand the context in which the psalmist is writing here. So if we understand the idea of sanctuary, we understand that for the Jewish person in the Old Testament, they understood, and rightly so, that the glory of God, the very presence of God, resided in the tabernacle or in the temple, as it would later be called. And so we read examples like Exodus chapter 40, beginning in verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's the place they had set up to worship the Lord. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, if we're not careful, we limit God to one place and one time. If we're not careful, we say we can only worship the Lord at this certain time on Sunday. Or the Old Testament people could only worship the Lord when he was in the tabernacle and they were in his presence. But let's expand our understanding a little bit. The children of Israel have wandered through the desert and they come up on Mount Sinai and they prepare to hear from the Lord. And the Bible tells us this, that God summoned Moses to come to the top of the mountain. In Exodus 24, 15 through 18, we read this. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. You make the connection now from the cloud over the tabernacle. It's the same cloud. The cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. And for six days the cloud covered the mountain. On the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from in the cloud and to the Israelites. The glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. And then Moses entered the cloud and he went up on the mountain and he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So we expand our understanding a little bit. We're to worship the Lord in the sanctuary, which of course was a tabernacle, which of course is an area of worship. But we expanded out a little bit to see the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and it filled the place and it was displayed to the people of Israel outside of the tabernacle. Now if we were to continue our study and continue to expand a little farther, we would begin to read verses like Isaiah 6.3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, we we need to get this understanding in the sense that that our worship to the Lord can't be limited to a sanctuary. It can't be limited to a building. It can't be limited to to just a time or a place. If we were to understand this truthfully from the Old Testament, the Word of God, our worship of the Lord needs to expand to the whole earth. Everywhere you are and everywhere you go, you can and should worship the Lord. That means when you walk into work tomorrow morning, there's an opportunity for you to worship and praise the Lord. When you go to the beach for vacation, there's an opportunity for you to praise the Lord. When you go do things with friends or family members, there's a time and an opportunity for you to worship the Lord. Now, I'm not saying you need to set up a little stand and preach and lead songs. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying in your hearts there ought to be a sense of worship. 
There ought to be a sense of praise, but I want you to notice what the psalmist does in verse 1. He expands it even farther for us. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary, which we understand is kind of from this center point moving out across the all earth, across all the earth. But we're also to praise Him in His mighty heavens. I don't know how many of you were up this morning early, but I was up early well before the sun came out, and I walked out to my truck this morning, and I looked up, and I don't know if any of you saw it this morning, but the sky was brilliant with stars. It was beautiful. I mean, you could just about see the Milky Way painted across the sky. The moon had just come up, and it was just, just a gorgeous morning, and it was a little cool. And I thought about this passage of Scripture, how we could praise the Lord in His mighty heavens, right? I thought about Psalm 19, 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. There's this sense of... Praising the Lord in the sanctuary, but that expands outside of the sanctuary. It ultimately fills the whole earth. There's this sense that it expands beyond the earth, into the skies, into the heavens. And so we understand as we read Psalm 150 verse 1, the point of this passage in this first verse is that we should worship God everywhere. There's no limitations. One writer said it like this, Each of us should begin our day by focusing our thoughts on God on who He is and on what He has graciously done for us. And as we do, our hearts will be filled with praise, with adoration, with joy. Our days at work, at home, at school, or wherever we are should be punctuated with thoughts and expressions of praise. Now watch this. Sundays should be the great crescendo as the many individual worshipers gather corporately to praise our great God. See, our worship should encompass everything about who we are. Randy and I had an opportunity this week to do something kind of interesting. We we went to Atlanta. Our church is looking for a church partnership to kind of work with and to try to help plant a church somewhere in the southeast. And we understand the need for church planting. We understand there's a need to to create more churches. and, And so we went on what's called a vision tour with the North American Mission Board. And so Randy and I, Tuesday morning, went to Atlanta, and we took this vision tour of inside the perimeter of Atlanta. And so we got on this little minibus. There were probably 15 of us on Tuesday morning. We began to drive around to neighborhoods. And let me give you a fact that's going to be a little astonishing to you. It was very astonishing to me. In Troop County, 60,000 people, I know 65,000 people roughly, there are approximately 55 Southern Baptist Evangelical churches in Troop County alone. For about 60,000 people. Inside the perimeter of 285. Now you guys have been to Atlanta before. You know how big that is. You know the hundreds of thousands. Probably the few million. I don't even know the number. That live within inside the perimeter of 285. Inside the perimeter of Atlanta. There are. You ready for this? Just over 60. Southern Baptist Evangelical Churches. There are almost the same number of churches in Troop County. (laughs) as there are in the perimeter of Atlanta. Now watch this. There are portions of downtown Atlanta, inside that 285 perimeter, that are less churched than some of the third world countries we talk about going to reach. It's true. We would drive through neighborhoods and the guy was like, you know, this is such and such neighborhood and there are probably thirty-five to 40,000 people that live in this neighborhood. There are zero churches. None. 
In fact, we had lunch with one of the missionaries, and so what we're doing is we're driving around the neighborhoods, and we're, we're meeting these guys that are trying to plant churches in Atlanta, and we're praying through, and our deacons are praying through who that ought to be. How can we partner with somebody to plant a church in downtown Atlanta? How can we begin to give resources and time and energy and money to go help those people? But we're sitting at lunch with this church planner, and he's telling the story of this neighborhood, and he said, you know, when I first came to Atlanta, I knew that I was going to move my family here, and I knew that the Lord had called us to plant a church, but we weren't exactly sure where, and there were a couple of neighborhoods we wanted to look at, and so he said, I came to this neighborhood, and he said, one of the things that I did in different neighborhoods is I just went to a coffee shop, and I started talking to people. He said, I felt like that was the best way to kind of get to know some of the people and get to know the area, and I could ask questions in a real unthreatening manner, so he said he went to a coffee shop, and he sat down and had a cup of coffee and struck up a conversation with a couple of people just sitting there, just real casual. He wanted to know about the area, said his family was going to be moving to Atlanta and wanted to hear a little bit more about that area and, and the people. And, and He said as he got close to the end of the conversation, he said he always finished with the same question. He said he always said to these people, listen, my family and I are believers. And so if we move to this area, we're going to be looking for a church. He said, could you just maybe point me in the direction or give me the name of a good church in this community? And he said those people looked at him. As if he had said, is there a unicorn feeding park anywhere nearby? Because we, we have pet unicorns, and it's going to be important for us to be able to take those unicorns and feed them on a regular basis. He said they looked at him like he was foolish, like they didn't have any idea what he was talking about. He said they weren't mean about it. He said they weren't upset about it. He said they, 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 they didn't feel like somebody had slighted him. He said they, it's just not in their frame of reference. It was just something they had not thought of before. And so we're driving around these communities, and the first place that this tour took us was a, a, a neighborhood called The Bluff. Now, some of you guys may be familiar with that. I'm not, I wasn't familiar with it until I read about it. Now, according to the North American Mission Board people, and according to the guy we met in this neighborhood, The Bluff is the worst neighborhood in Atlanta, crime-wise. It's the worst. In fact, it's known as the heroin capital of the Southeast. In other words, people from all over the southeast, all the major cities around the south, southern United States, come to this neighborhood and buy their heroin. And then they, they funnel it out to all sorts of other places all around southeastern United States. And we're standing on the street corner, and the guy's like, you see that building right there, that yellow building? He said, that's the place where they buy and sell heroin. There are people just coming and going. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. And there are people just coming and going. Lots of activity. People walk around the streets. And we stood there on that street corner, and we, we met a man named Winston. And Winston's got a heart for this neighborhood. This is a neighborhood with abandoned buildings, boarded up houses. He said, there, there are probably 100,000 people in this area, and it's almost like the world has forgotten about them. There have been specials done on TV. In fact, I watch a couple of specials about this area. The houses are abandoned and boarded up. And so what happens is people get inside these houses and all sorts of crimes are perpetrated. Drugs, prostitution, murder, you can imagine. After dark is extremely dangerous. But we stood there and we listened to that guy talking about his vision for that community. And I'll be very honest, I stood around and I listened to him talk and I looked around and I see these boarded up dilapidated houses and I, I see these homeless people and people that you just think would, would, would not be safe to be around. And I'm standing there on the street corner looking at these people, and I'm wondering, you know, what can really happen here? It's very easy for me in my mind to think, you know, it's just too much, Lord. It's just too much. And then the, the, the Lord reminded me in the, in the subtle way that he does, you know what, nothing's too big for him. And there's no one hopeless because of him. And we begin to think of where, where can we worship. And it's real easy for us to worship and praise the Lord right here. And it's comfortable and we've set it up nicely and we sing songs and we study and we pray in exactly the way we believe the scripture commands us to do. But it's hard for us to walk on a street corner next to a drug addict or a prostitute and think about praising the Lord there, isn't it? But you need to understand the truth of the word of God. And here it is. 
The Lord is present everywhere. And Christ died on the cross for all sins. And so no matter where you are, even in the worst of circumstances, you can praise Him. And there's always hope in Christ. Now verse 2, let's continue to walk through this. Where should we praise the Lord? Everywhere. Verse 2 of Psalm 150. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. Here's the second question we're going to answer this morning. Not only where should we praise the Lord, but question 2... Why should we praise the Lord? Why is it important for us to dedicate our lives and our service to Him? Now, He's going to give us kind of two reasons here. He's going to give us two ideas. The idea of acts of power. We should praise Him because of His acts of power, because of His strength and what He's accomplished. But we're also to praise Him for His surpassing greatness. We're supposed to praise Him because of who He is. Now, I did a little research this week, and I started looking at some verses in the book of Psalms that talk about the Lord's power. Let me read you just a couple. You don't have to look them up, but I I want you just to listen for just a second about the Lord's power and some of the things that he's done for us as we think about why we should worship the Lord. Psalm 139 tells us that the Lord formed us while we were in the womb and ordained all the days of our life, right? Psalm 22 says that he sent the Messiah to die on the cross for our sins. Psalm 23 says that he's our provider for every need and he is our good shepherd. Psalm 32 tells of the forgiveness of sin. Psalm 57 tells how God is sufficient, even in times of struggle and trial. Psalm 71 teaches us of God's grace in all times. Psalm 119 talks about the importance of His Word and the importance of allowing the Lord to guide us in all of His mighty deeds. And on and on and on the list goes. I could read psalm after psalm after psalm that talks about the power of the Lord and His acts of power and all the things that He's accomplished. But here's the thing I want you to think about. It's very easy for us when we read these Old Testament texts to understand them and believe that they're true, but it's easy for us to set them aside because they happened thousands of years ago, right? And this was good for the Old Testament people. This was good for the people of Israel, but what does that have to do with me now? How am I supposed to understand this in light of what's going on at work with me? Well, let me remind you of something. See, Jesus Christ willingly stepped down out of heaven He walked upon this earth. He lived a sinless life. He gave his life on the cross. He died on the cross. He rose again three days later. He sacrificed everything to take the wrath of the Father for your sins. And because he did that, because all he's done for us, there's hope in him. But here's the point. See, because of what Christ accomplished, there's not only hope and joy and praise for the people of the Old Testament, but there's hope and joy and praise for the people of today. See, I want you to think just for a second, and I don't want you to jot any of these down, but if I went around this congregation and I asked you just for a couple of minutes to begin to list out the things the Lord has done for you, I bet you could come up with a pretty incredible list, couldn't you? The ways the Lord has blessed you, the grace that he's shown you in your life, all the prayers that he's answered. One of the things that I've done in the past is with a prayer journal, you, you begin to write out your prayers and the things you're specifically asking the Lord for. And every time a prayer is answered, you go back in that journal and you write out the date it was answered and how it was answered. And after you begin to do that for several months or several years, you have this log of the goodness of God, don't you? And the power of God and all the things that He's accomplished for us. But here's the danger for believers, and here's where we need to be very careful. Christianity for us, if we're not careful, becomes this. Lord, I'm going to continue to follow you and I'm going to continue to worship you as long as you continue answering my prayers. I mean, as long as I'm getting something out of this, as long as you're going to continue to work and bless and give me all the things that I need, Lord, as long as I do those things, Lord, then I'm good, right? I'm happy. 
But Lord, if, if you quit answering the prayers like I think you ought to answer them, or you, you quit doing the things that I think you ought to do, or you, you quit kind of acting the way, Lord, that I think you ought to act, if you, if you quit doing those things, Lord, it's kind of off. I'm going to kind of distance myself from you. That's the danger of Christianity, right? And so I think that's why verse 2 is so interesting because it talks about understanding his acts of power, what he's done. We should worship him certainly because of what he's done, but we should also worship him, the second part of that verse, because of his surpassing greatness. You understand that? We don't worship him simply because of what he's done. We worship him because of who he is, and there is a difference. We don't ever want to fall in this trap of worshiping the Lord because of all he's given to us, right? Of praising him because of all he's done for us and all the prayers he's answered. And those are important, and we do praise him for those things. But at some point, we have to understand as believers, we worship him because of who he is. I was sitting around last night, kind of, I finished up with my sermon prep stuff, and I was, I was trying to get ready for bed, and I always try to take my mind off my sermon right before I go to bed, which is very, very difficult and almost impossible. But if I get my mind off my sermon, I can sleep. If I can't, I'm usually awake. And so I usually try to do something totally unrelated. I'll either read a different passage of Scripture or I'll do something unrelated. And last night, I just felt led to read through the book of Revelation. Some, and I don't usually read Revelation. It's a book that, if we're all honest, kind of hard to understand. It speaks of future events, and we don't quite know what to do with it sometimes. And so I just found myself reading through the book of Revelation, and I came across Revelation chapter 15. And the thing just kind of stuck out to me. And again, as I tried to distance myself from the sermon, the Lord kind of reminded me of what I was going to be talking about more and more, which is fine. That's it's his deal, right? It's his deal. That's what he wanted to do, and that was fine. But as I read through the book of Revelation, I, I was reminded of the power of the Lord. And I was reminded of his glory, and I was reminded of his greatness. And so I'm going to read for you Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. This one just stood out to me last night as I was reading. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? It's kind of like this rhetorical question. I mean, who's not going to fear the Lord, right? I mean, who's not going to bring glory to his name? For you alone are holy, All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. See, we need to worship the Lord because of his power and because of his glory, but we need to worship the Lord because of his surpassing greatness, because of who he is and because of what he's done. Now let's continue. Verses 3, 4, and 5. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with the timbrel or tambourine. And dancing, praise him with the strings and with the pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. So we've talked about the where of worship and praise. We've talked about the why of worship and praise. Now here's the third question Psalm 150 answers. Number three, how should we praise the Lord? How should we praise the Lord? Now the Bible in verses 3 through 5 give us this great list of instruments. The trumpet and the harp and the lyre and the tambourine and strings and pipes and cymbals and then the list is pretty robust right and we need to be careful here because we're not saying this is the only way that we should worship there are other ways we can worship certainly our voices are used to worship our actions and our attitudes can be ways in which we worship but i want to pull out kind of two ideas from these verses about instruments here's here's the first thing i want you to understand about verses three four and five as we talk about how we should worship the, the first thing i think we ought to understand is we shouldn't be afraid of multiple instruments in our worship service and praise the lord we're not but you begin to read about harps and strings and cymbals and you begin to think wow that's an interesting time of worship isn't it 
I mean, it's probably loud and exciting and a lot of stuff going on, right? And we, we, we read about this idea of dancing. And if you're like every other Southern Baptist, you kind of, you take the black highlighter and you just kind of black over the word dancing in your scripture, right? Because that can't really be in the Bible, right, Lord? I mean, <laughs> now trust me, I have children now and they're growing up. And so I understand the danger of dancing. Trust me, okay? I understand. I understand where that's coming from. But I think we ought to open our hearts a little bit to say, you know what, the Lord at least gives us this license in here to dance when we worship him. Now, I'm not saying we're about to have a string of dancers up here next week. I'm not, don't hear me saying that. Don't be afraid and go tweet that Adam said we're going to have dancers. I'm, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is we need to open our hearts a little bit to worship because it's very easy for us sometimes to come in awfully somber, isn't it? I've had pastors tell me, you better not ever do it. I'm going to tell you right now. But I've had pastors tell me, they have people in their service when it's time to go, they do like this. I'm probably going to do like this if you do that. All right? So just don't even, don't do that. I don't expect you to. But I think it's easy for us to be just somber and not really thinking about all the Lord has done. And so that's kind of at least to the second point. We think about all these instruments and dancing. It, the second thing we need to understand about praise and worship, it ought to be exciting for us. It ought to be lively for us. I mean, these people were, were I mean, you start talking about banging on a cymbal and playing trumpets and people dancing, and you're like, hey, that's a party, right? You think, you think you're reading about a party in the Old Testament? It was a worship service. It was a time of worship when people were excited because of who the Lord was. You understand that? And when's the last time we were so excited about the Lord that we wanted to sing or shout or dance or whatever the Lord leads you to do? I think we miss that sometimes in our worship. One writer said it like this. There's a festive, joyous air to these verses. Worship is not to be a somber, formal exercise devoid of joy. Yes, we need to be reverent as is fitting in the presence of our holy God. Of course, there is a place for somberness when we confess our sins and think of the Lord's death. But God also wants his people to celebrate his goodness. We're not at God's funeral. We serve a risen Savior. Our faces should reflect that we're enjoying God and his bountiful provision for us in Jesus. I think we miss that, don't we? We miss the joy of worshiping Christ because of who he is and because of what he's accomplished. You know, if you're a football fan, yesterday was maybe a good day for you. I think all the local teams won, and Auburn didn't play, so they didn't have a chance to lose, so that was good. I didn't really plan on saying that, honey. I'm sorry. I just, from the overflow of the heart, I'm sorry. I got some deacons that are Auburn fans. My apologies. So let's move on past that. The local, the, the, the <laughs> man, it, it is, it's getting rowdy in here. Wow. I'm glad the 11 o'clock service is recorded. Are you recording this one or 11? This one? Oh, wow. Okay. Anyway, it's an exciting day for football, right? If you happen to see the Georgia LSU game, depending on who you were pulling for, I guess you ended up happy or sad. But we could, I think we could all say in fairness, it was an incredible game, right? Very exciting. Went, literally went down to the wire. I mean, I bet if I'd been a fly on the wall in your house, I would hear heard you screaming one way or the other, right? Good or bad. If you've ever been to a college football game, you understand in person it's even better. It's an incredibly exciting moment. So we'll go to football games. We'll go to people's houses and we'll celebrate what's going on and we'll scream and we'll shout and we'll dance around. But we'll come into church sometimes and we'll forget what's really important because it really matters what we're doing here, right? Football's great and I love it, but it's not eternal. 
your walk with Christ is and how you conduct yourself now to bring him honor is way more important than any football game we'll ever celebrate. So you know, we should be excited about those kinds of things, but I just want to recognize from the teaching of Scripture, it's okay to be excited in worship. It's okay to be excited about Christ. It's okay to be excited about the things of the church because of who God is and what he's accomplished. Now we need to finish up. Look at verse 6. We've seen the where of praise. We've seen the why of praise. We've seen the how of praise. Now look at verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Here's the first, fourth question we need to answer. Who should praise the Lord? Verse 6 gives us such a clear answer. Everything that has breath should praise the Lord. That means you, and that means me. One writer said it very simply. He said, the only qualification for praising the Lord is that you breathe. That's so true. See, the, the Lord is great, and he's marvelous, and he's wonderful, and he's powerful. But here's the question we need to answer. Are we worshiping and praising him on a regular basis? It's that simple. Do we get caught up with all the things of life? Do we get excited about all the wrong things and we miss the truth of the teaching of the Word of God about who He is and all He's done in our life? One scholar made this statement, praise and worship is a matter of obedience to our great God. It stems from deliberately focusing on Him. It's the result of being willfully, watch this, God-centered in your thinking. I love that. Willfully God-centered in your thinking. If you are breathing Praising God is not an option. It's your responsibility. So let's just finish up with a very quick summary. Where should we praise the Lord? Everywhere. Why should we praise the Lord? Because of his power and his glory, because of who he is and what he's done. How should we praise the Lord? With excitement and joy, with music and song and celebration. And finally, who should praise the Lord? Everyone. And so I want to leave you with a challenge and an encouragement this week. I want you to focus on the Lord. And praise Him every moment of every day. And when you do that, when you seek Him and find Him, you will truly worship and He will be honored and He will be glorified. Now let's pray. Father, we thank You for this teaching. We thank You for the clarity of this passage of Scripture, Lord. We're just so thankful that You just answer very simple questions for us sometimes, Lord. It seems so simple and yet it's so profound, Lord, when we begin to think about our lives and begin to ask ourselves the question, are we really doing this? Help us to see your power. Help us to see your glory, Lord. Help us to find excitement in you and worship you everywhere we go, Father. And help us to see that if we're alive and breathing, we need to worship you and honor you and praise you. Use us, Lord, in mighty and powerful ways for your honor and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand. I'm going to give you the opportunity to come and pray at the altar if you want to spend time in prayer, if you want to repent of your sins, and accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you want to join this church, this is your time now as we sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.